I've never been one of those conflicted black reporters who just wants to be a reporter. I always knew I wanted to write about race. The only reason I wanted to be a journalist was to write about race. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of award-winning journalism here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes program here, and I am joined, as always, by my colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, director of the DuPont Awards. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. How are you? How was your break? My break was very nice. Thank you. Happy 2019. 2019. It's going to be, I believe, a big year. A very big year. We're going to be bringing you a conversation today from late 2018 with uh, New York Times Magazine writer Nicole Hannah-Jones. But before we go to that, we want to just talk briefly about our stellar 2019 DuPont Columbia Award winners. That's right. This is our last podcast before we hold the DuPont Award ceremony at Lowe Memorial Library. It's coming up on January 22nd, and we announced the winners last month in December. Uh, 16 outstanding works, and you can see a full list of them if you go to our webpage, www.dupont.org. You can click through to different links and explore them. It's an extraordinary year of incredible reporting across platforms highlighting a year for women. Uh, The majority of our winners were either reported by female teams or were about women. In addition, our ceremony is going to be hosted by two amazing women journalists, Leslie Stahl from CBS News 60 Minutes and from NPR News, Elsa Chang. That's right. And we'll tell you a little bit more about some of those winners at the end of the podcast today. But uh, just a couple of other noteworthy wins. We kind of did a real range this year from the very, very topical, a podcast called Trump Inc. about Donald Trump's business interests. Then at the other end of the spectrum, this haunting, gorgeous Vietnam series, which is the PBS, Ken Burns, and Lynn Novick sweeping history of the Vietnam War. Yeah, an amazing tour de force, 18 hours of documentary programming, really an unprecedented event. We also have this every year of commitment to local investigative reporting, and we weren't disappointed this year. There were some terrific stories that won, ranging from stories about race, crime, the environment, politics, and corruption, including a story called Zombie Campaigns, which is about a loophole, and this is still legal, that allows politicians to spend their campaign war chests for years, even after they're dead. Unbelievable. Some great reporting out of Florida. And it's always an important reminder about how critical local reporting is across the country. We always really enjoy and appreciate the hard work that local investigative teams are doing. So we'll tell you a little bit more about the highlights of the DuPont ceremony after the podcast. But uh, first, we had another ceremony recently, and we awarded Nicole Hannah-Jones the John Chancellor Award for Excellence in Journalism. She's a as you said, New York Times magazine writer. And as part of the festivities, we asked NBC News anchor Lester Holt to come up to the J School and have a conversation with her in front of our students. Yeah, it was kind of a nice synergy there to have Lester from NBC in conversation with Nicole, Um, you know, since John Chancellor was the longtime NBC News anchor and correspondent. So that was a a nice connection to make. And it was a huge turnout to hear uh, Lester and Nicole in conversation here at the Journalism School in November of 2018. So without further ado, here's an edited version of the conversation with Lester Holt and Nicole Hannah-Jones. 
I, I guess the place to start is how you started in journalism, but if you can also tell me what, what, what appealed to you about journalism, how you viewed it as, as a younger person. Hey everyone. Thanks for coming to hear us talk today. So I, I get asked that question a lot, I'm sure you do too, and I can't remember precisely when I became interested in the news. I just know I was a very nerdy child. I know it's hard to believe. Um, but from a young age, I read the newspaper, I watched the news, I read history, and I remember I think I wrote my first letter to the editor to our local paper when I was in fifth grade, and they published it, which I thought was amazing. And it was because I had, I had read an article about my side of town. I lived, I'm from Iowa, but any place where there's a significant number of black people, somehow they managed to segregate us. So I lived on the black side of town, and I remember reading an article in the paper that I felt didn't properly reflect uh, my community, and I wrote a letter to the editor about it. And so I started thinking about writing and the power of, of media and who's telling stories at a pretty young age. And then when I was in high school, I was bused to white high schools as part of a voluntary desegregation program. And I took a one semester black studies class and I went to that teacher one day and I, I was complaining to him about our high school paper and that I didn't feel like our high school paper ever wrote about kids like me and my friends who were bused into the school from the black side of town and he told me if I didn't like it to join the paper or shut up and don't come and complain about it anymore. He was the only black male teacher I ever had and so I really took that to heart. I joined my high school paper and that's when I started thinking seriously about journalism as a career because for the first time I was seeing kids like me reading our paper because there was things in the paper that pertain to their lives and those were the things that I was writing. So I started to think about that, uh, but I was always torn between history, whether I wanted to be a historian or a journalist, but ultimately decided that journalists get to write history as it's happening. Journalists write for the masses, historians write for other history nerds, largely, and so that's kind of how I decided to be a journalist. You worked a lot of places. Did you, did you ever struggle with the idea of how much advocacy you could do as a journalism versus some just the, the, the main, you know, here's what happened today type reporting? Yeah, I think I always struggled with that from the beginning. Thank God early in my career there wasn't Twitter. So I think it was much easier to camouflage kind of your thoughts about what was happening in the world, but I think for me, I got into journalism because I had a strong sense that the world was not just, and that journalism was a way that you could expose that injustice. So clearly, I wanted to write so that things would change. And I think there's always been, particularly with black Americans and black journalists, this tension between just being writers, which mainstream or white journalism tells you that you should just be someone who just reports the quote unquote facts, and the history of the black press, which is always I think necessarily been an advocacy press because you can't have uh, objectivity reporting on a nation that wants to deny you and people like you your basic rights. So I think that's something that I used to struggle with a lot. I don't really struggle with anymore because I don't even try to pretend. But I should say to young journalists or new journalists, I had established a track record of reporting before I I don't recommend that people are as open about how they feel about the things that they cover as I am, particularly journalists who are trying to establish reputations. But I, I think in general, there's no such thing as objectivity. I think we like to put forth a face of objectivity, and I understand why we do that. Um, but in truth, anything 
that we know enough about, we formed an opinion on. And our job as journalists, I think, is to be fair and to be accurate. But when I write about, uh, say, school segregation, I'm not pretending I'm objective about the issue of school segregation. I think it's very clear. I think school segregation is harmful to children, and so therefore it's wrong. And, and I don't find a, a need to pretend that I have no thoughts about it. Yeah, you know, you use the word fairness, and I think this is something that comes up a lot. What is what is fair journalism? Does it mean giving 50% of your article to this view and 50% to that view, or is it something else? How do you view it? I think that fairness means that you are fairly representing the sides, and that fair representation may be that one of the sides' arguments is bullshit, right? Uh, and you call it. Yeah. As it is. Exactly. I mean, we're not stenographers. Our job is, our privilege is to report and to find facts and then give people an idea of, of what those facts are. So I think, you know, one of the big issues that a lot of newsrooms, including the Times, struggled with a while ago was how to cover climate change where you had the bulk of the science saying climate change was real. You had a very, very small number of folks saying it wasn't, but feeling like for objectivity or the appearance of objectivity, you had to give both of those sides kind of equal credibility when they clearly did not have equal credibility. That's harmful and that's not what we get into journalism for. So I, I don't believe in that. I think what's important to me is, can anyone dispute the facts of what I've written? Can anyone say that something I've written is not accurate? And did I fairly portray the sides, even if that fair portrayal is saying, like, they're lying, right? This is not true. There's no data to back up what they're saying. But you don't give, I guess, false credibility where it's not deserved. What do you wish you knew? What, what do you wish you knew when you were starting out? <laughs> we're going to be here about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything, right? There's a reason they say youth is lost on the young. I think the, the thing that I really wish I knew was how much of this business and your ability to move forward in this business is about who you knew and not about how hard you worked and how good you were at your job. You guys listen to this? <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I'm, I'm not generally a naive person, but I was very naive coming out of graduate school. And I just thought if I had done internships and I had all these great clips and I was hustling, like that was going to be the thing that would get me into positions. And it just, you know this, right? It's just not the case. And what I learned from watching other people who were moving in ways that I wasn't, whom I didn't think were better reporters than me, was that so much of it was about who they were networking with, who they were getting FaceTime with, whose networks they got themselves in. I'm not a small talker. I'm not a fake person. All my friends know like I have zero poker face at all, which they're like, how have you been a reporter for this long? Um, <laughs> You have to market. You have to market yourself. Exactly. You and you and you figure it out, right? Like you, I, I figure out how to have a poker face. Clearly, when I'm interviewing someone and they're saying something crazy, I'm not like, oh shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I just didn't. I, I didn't. It, it felt very uh, fake to me to have to be trying to set up these coffees or meetings with people that really I wasn't that interested in having coffees or meetings with. But realizing that. That's how other people were getting into positions. You wanted your work to speak for itself and your yes, accomplishments. I mean, that was the assumption, but that was not the truth. And once I learned that, then I realized if I wanted to compete, I was going to have to do these things that did not come naturally to me. And the only job I've ever gotten since uh, graduate school 
where I didn't know someone who worked in that institution was the New York Times. That was the first job in my whole career where I got hired at a place where I did not have a connection. And that tells you a lot about this business. It's very incestuous. Um, a lot of times jobs are filled before they're ever announced or publicized anywhere. People send emails and they're like, we have this job opening, who should we hire? If you're not in those networks, you don't get on those lists and those jobs are already filled before you even have a chance in the outside world to apply for them. It's not that it's not everywhere else. I think it's in all corporate America, but I think we like to pretend that we are not that type of field and we are. Dee, do you ever imagine sitting where these folks here, our audience is, in an era in which social media plays such a huge part in everything we do? Can you imagine starting out your career in this environment? No. Uh, so I was, I was a very late adopter. I, I didn't even know what email was until senior year of college. And that's only because my professors were like, we're, we're only going to be corresponding with email. And I was like, oh, I guess I better sign up for this thing. I mean, I'm old. I'm 42. When I started my first journalism job... <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing on the inside here, so... <laughs> trying to be cool. <laughs> Oh, to be 42 again. <laughs> if you saw all these gray hairs, I have to cover up with all this dye. Um, so, you know, when I started in my first newsroom job, websites were very, very new for newspapers. They were just mostly text. There was almost no photos. When I was at the News and Observer, they actually had an entire separate entity that was the web. And it, and it was, like, completely separate from the paper. I mean, it was crazy. So, no, I... I I wouldn't have thought that social media would play the role that it has at all. I think in many ways it's been very democratizing. I think it has forced news institutions to cover communities and cover things that they were ignoring. You look at why all of a sudden all of these newsrooms started covering police brutality. It was because citizen journalists were bypassing us and posting directly online videos that were disputing uh, the police story and citizens forced that coverage. So I think that's been amazing. I love that people feel like they can speak directly to journalists in a way where, you know, before they didn't have to. If I wrote something 15 years ago and someone in the community disagreed with it, they could send a letter to the editor and that letter to the editor may or may not be published. But now people can like call that material out directly online and I love that. I think it, it makes more us more accountable. Exactly. It makes us more accountable. I think it makes us more careful. I think it also lets people know like there's real people behind these stories. But I think now when you can interact directly, you can I mean, sometimes Twitter is very ugly, but other times I think it can be really great. And I think we as journalists, we shouldn't set ourselves apart and up here and I just put my product out into the world and you just must accept it and you can't deign to challenge me. I don't think that's the type of profession we are and that we should have ever been. You uh, mentioned early on in one of your answers about your growing up in Iowa, and a lot of your reporting has been about race, it's been about housing, education disparities, I think you call it reintegration. Tell me about your, your education and growing up in Iowa and how it shaped your worldview. Okay, so, you know, there are black people in Iowa, just get that out of the way. We were on the same migration that took people from Mississippi to Chicago, but I always say our family was so country, we got off the train too early because we had thought we were in a big city and we didn't quite make it. Um, <laughs> so my hometown in a state that's about 2% black was about 15% black. And so we had a significant, I mean, that's, that's a larger percentage than the nation is black. Significant black population. 
and all of the black population, like in every northern industrial city that was the um, landing spot for the Great Migration, black people were forced into segregated housing and were forced to live in a certain part of town, which was then subsequently redlined. And so that's where we were. In my first two years of school, I attended segregated schools, um, but my hometown had been placed under a voluntary desegregation order. Um, so starting in second grade, I rode the bus for two hours every day back and forth from my side of town to the whitest school in our hometown. And what I always say, and, and it's actually literally true, was I came to think a lot about race and structural racism, though of course at that age I didn't know that that's what it was, because I would be watching the landscape from the windows of my bus as I'm taking this hour-long journey from my neighborhood to the richest, whitest part of town every day, and just seeing as the housing stock and the roads and everything changes as we get closer and closer to the bridge that separates the black side from the white side and how the further we get into the white neighborhood, there was like all this shopping and restaurants and the houses got bigger and everything seemed nicer. And I was just seeing that and wondering like, why was that? Because I also knew that my family is very working class. Most of my family are uh, working in like the John Deere plant or the beef packing plants, the chicken plants in our hometown. I didn't know anybody who worked harder than them. I remember my uncles like they had been cutting on carcasses all day and their joints would be so swollen um, that they couldn't make a fist. Yet we were being told that my side of town looked like that because black people just didn't work hard and didn't want better. And I just remember just really young understanding that what we're being told is not right. And I know it's not right because I'm seeing this and it doesn't make sense. And so being busmen, I got access to the best public schools in our town, but I think the greater education was actually just really understanding not how race worked, but that, that there was a fiction happening and we were being told a lie. And I was able to see that, I think, in a way that my classmates who remained behind in segregated schools and didn't have the opportunity to go into other neighborhoods may not have seen. And I don't even remember what your question was. I no, you, no, it was, it was about your growing up okay. and, and school, and, and that leads to my next question. Is, is that essentially what led you on the path to covering the education beat and the inequalities in education? So I always knew I wanted to write about race. I've never been one of those conflicted black reporters who just wants to be a reporter. I always knew I wanted to write about race. The only reason I wanted to be a journalist was to write about race. I really wanted to write about black folks in the South for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which never hired me, by the way, but that's okay, I've done okay. <laughs> I'm not bitter or anything. Um, Living well is the best revenge, remember <laughs> exactly. that. <laughs> so I didn't necessarily think I wanted to write about education, but uh, my very first job out of graduate school was covering the Durham Public Schools for the News and Observer in their bureau. So that was just the first job I fell into. Lesson, you take whatever the first job it is that you get, and it didn't matter to me, no matter what beat I had, I was gonna write about race because there's nothing in America that racism doesn't touch and corrupt. So I'm covering schools right at the time uh, when the penalty stage of No Child Left Behind is kicking in. So No Child Left Behind is basically saying, we're not gonna break up the poverty or segregation in these schools. We're just going to test the hell out of them. We're gonna keep replacing their principals and their teaching staff every three years. And if we punish them and test them, that somehow miraculously they will overcome their poverty and get the same test scores as rich white schools. So I'm just going in these schools and I'm just watching how hard 
all these educators are working in these schools but not getting the results that they're being told they have to get because of course No Child Left Behind also did not come with additional resources to do this. It just became so clear what, that it was a setup, right? That these schools were set up to fail, that there was no way they were gonna be able to compete. Uh, they were purging black educators in these schools and it became also so clear to me that schools and then housing were the drivers of almost every other inequality in our country. And that's kind of when I became obsessed with those two things. In 2016, you wrote a New York Times Magazine article that really kind of went inside your, your, your personal decision that you and your husband had to go through as to where to send your, your, was your daughter to school. In New York, there's the idea, do you send them to the neighborhood school? Do you go out somewhere to a school with better test scores? Talk a little bit about that and how you felt about the issue, but also about sharing it the way you did. Uh, so in general, I don't recommend <laughs> telling your own personal stories as journalists for many reasons. One, like, hopefully we don't get into this to tell our own stories. Hopefully we get into journalism to tell other people's stories. And also, this was a personal story that was very directly on my beat, which is clearly also not uh, something I generally recommend. The only reason I did that story, I mean, I had been writing almost exclusively about school segregation at that point for about three or four years. And we, we intentionally enrolled our daughter in a segregated high poverty school. And that school became embroiled in an integration battle that became a national news story. And people kept messaging me and emailing me like, are you gonna write about what's happening in Brooklyn? Because they didn't know my daughter was actually in that school. And it got to the point where I just, I was just so disappointed with the coverage. I, I just think in general, the way that we write about race in this country is extremely superficial. People think I'm good at writing about race because I'm black, but you know, as Jelani Cobb says, there's no melanin superpower, like there's nothing about, I mean, I, I disagree with that. I think there is a melanin superpower, but <laughs> there's nothing about being black that inherently makes you good at writing about race. What makes you good at writing about race is studying the hell out of race and racism, right, in this country. And so I just knew I had um, a knowledge and experience to bring to bear on the story that I didn't see. And I had for a long time been wanting to write about school segregation in the North because most of my stories had been about the South, and I would always get all these progressive white people up in New York who would be like, oh my God, they're so backwards in Tuscaloosa. And I'm like, I mean, seriously, have you been to New York City schools? Like, amongst the most segregated and unequal in the entire country, and you're looking down on Tuscaloosa. Anyway, that's a long way of getting around to me saying, one day I go to my editor, and I'm like, I think I might want to write about what's happening with my daughter's school. And they were like, yes, do it. And then I was like, actually, no, I changed my mind. I don't think it's a good idea for me to write about this. And they're like, it's too late. <laughs> you, know, you know how that is, right? Like, never tell your editor something, because it's over. And so they wanted me to do it. And we talked a lot about what that would mean. Like, do you lose credibility on a beat when you write a personal story about it? And I don't think I've lost credibility. I do think there are probably people who don't talk to me on stories about this because of that story though, because I think they don't feel I will be fair to them. Because you took, a, you took a strong point of view and questioned those, I guess by making your decision to, to keep your child in, in the local school, I guess that's seen as a judgment by others who, who made different Yeah, choices. I mean, I, in the piece it was very clear. I may not have written the words I'm judging you, but <laughs> I don't 
think anyone could read the piece. Um, I mean, it's also why, of all the things I've written, that piece has been the most popular thing I've ever done, surprisingly. And I think it's because I was, I was, I was liberated in a way that you are not when you're doing a straight story. I could write in an argument and form an argument in a way that in a straight new story you cannot. And for those of you who most of you probably have not read stories, 10,000 words, I understand. The story comes about largely because when I first started covering segregated schools and I would be talking to other journalists and who were covering these segregated schools and I would be talking to academics uh, who are researching these schools and advocates who were advocating for these kids. And then I would ask them, what schools do you send your own kids to? And none of them, not one of them, sent their kids to the schools with the kids that they said that they cared so much about. And I remember as a young journalist just thinking like I, I'm not, I couldn't do that. Like it felt so hypocritical to me. But I didn't have kids then. And it's easy of course to have these moral values in the abstract. It's very difficult to live them out, particularly when it comes to your children. And so what the story ended up being was this sweeping history of school segregation in the North and school segregation in New York City and how it's related to housing segregation, but also very personal about the arguments that my husband and I had when I told him, told him, not asked him, what we were gonna do with our child. Because I also think if you're going to write about yourself, you have to be honest. You have to show the ugly sides just like you show the ugly sides of other people that you right, write but about. What, but what you do in the unique role of writing for New York Times Magazine, you have a bit more license yes. to go there. Obviously, your editors agree. Yeah. I mean, magazine writing in that way is, is different. I think you're expected to have more voice. My editors knew what they were getting into when they decided they wanted me to go forward with writing a personal piece. And I do think, again, like I, I, I've been writing about these issues for so long the reporting can't be disputed, even if at this point you know how I feel about it. Um, Nicole, my question is, what challenges have you faced um, covering race when you have to ask difficult questions within your own community? As a black person, I'm very keen to make sure the advocate in me wants to make sure that I'm portraying black people in a positive light. But I think sometimes, Basically, the line of the story goes down, well, I then have to start asking some very difficult questions that I don't necessarily want to answer because it could mean that I'm portraying black people in a negative light because of the way the story is going. So I just wanted to ask if you've had any issues covering questions when it comes to asking challenging questions within your own community. So, no. I don't have difficulty asking challenging questions in our community. I think, you know, we are as fully human and as fully flawed as any other group of people, and I think we actually do our communities a disservice um, when we think we can only show us as heroes in all of our stories, because we are not, just like no one else is. I think what I do struggle with is I am always very, very conscious of who my audience is. And when I write about us, just like you would write about any other human being, are people just seeing this as a stereotype and are they getting the complexity and the nuance and the constrained choices that the people I'm writing about have. I mean, I know who reads the New York Times and I don't want in any way to write something that is harmful because I didn't do a good enough job with my writing. And I'm struggling with that in my book right now because I'm, I'm writing about Detroit. I've been embedded in a, a high school, the poorest high school. Detroit's the poorest major city in the country. 
got the worst major school district in the country, and I'm in the worst high school in the worst major school district. So I'm seeing a lot of terrible things happening. And most of the teachers are black. All the students are black. The principals are black. So how am I writing about the structural inequality that is leading people to make choices that look very bad, but actually when you understand the environment in which they're making these choices and the constraints that they have, you, then you can understand why they're making the choices. But it is my job as a writer to be able to convey that in a way that people understand that and they don't just say, see, this is why black people can't do this, or this is why black people are like that. And that is a constant struggle. And I think all good writers, all good journalists are constantly going back and assessing, did I, did I fall short of this? And it's a big burden to carry. I think it's a, it's a burden for all journalists to carry, but when you're coming from an already marginalized community, the burden is even greater. What keeps me honest is that I think that I'm always afraid of that, and I think you don't want to lose that fear. I think when you start thinking, I got it, I know what I'm doing, that's when you start to make mistakes that can be harmful, not because they're inaccurate, but because you have not accurately portrayed them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So keep that, that pit and that fear that you're, that you're not doing the right thing, because I think that's what makes you very careful with your words. And the last advice I would give on that, I believe if, if you write anything about a community or any person that you are uncomfortable reading back to that person, then you need to wonder why you're printing it. And just as a matter of practice, I read back passages to my sources, particularly more vulnerable ones who are not media savvy, all the time to make sure that I am being fair to them. Because we do have a great deal of power. And I think, particularly when we're writing about marginalized people, we often feel buffered because we're like, they may not read it. They may not even see what I write. In Bed-Stuy, in my neighborhood, you can't even get the New York Times at the bodega. They don't sell it. So there's a good chance that I could write a story and they'll never see it. And I think that has liberated us in a bad way to not be accountable to the people that we write about. I don't think you should ever have a story that runs and a person opens it up and is surprised by what's in there. And for many people, having a reporter talk to them for the first time or the only time in their lives, they're excited about it and they go to the paper and then if they open that and see themselves portrayed in a way that they think is unfair, I think we don't understand how harmful long-term that is. I don't ever want to be that person. In my first experience in like uh, doing journalism here at Columbia, the first person to ask me for a read of what they uh, I was writing about them was the local Republican club, the leader of the local Republican club. I felt uncomfortable giving that. I guess I'm like, what's the line between like trying to be fair to the person who you're covering and trying to uh, tell a narrative that's uh, accurate? So one, um, I just don't think we should be publishing anything that we haven't fact checked back. It, period. What gives me peace when I publish a story is knowing that I have gone over these facts with the people I'm writing about and they can't dispute the facts of it, even if they don't like the argument. What I think is critical is whenever I have these conversations, I always say up front, I'm not changing anything just because you don't like it. I'm gonna change things if they are inaccurate. You may not agree with how I phrase it, you may not like how I portray it, but if it's not inaccurate, I'm not changing it. You say that up front. And you should never feel pressure to change anything just because someone does not like it. But the truth is, we get things wrong all the time. 
We misunderstand things all the time. We can all be in, inarticulate. As someone who has been interviewed before, I know I sometimes say things and I'm like, I didn't really mean to say it that way. It's not exactly what I meant. Clarification is good for journalists, right? Having people feel like you've treated them fairly and gave them a chance to understand, I think is good. So you still control it in the end. You're the writer, right? But why would you, to me, not want to check back with all of your sources and make sure that you have fairly and accurately portrayed them? Can you um, talk a little bit about just like most common mistakes that you see when reporting on race or and or segregation and just like how to avoid them? I think one, we're afraid to call things what they are. We see this now all the time, racially tinged comment, racially charged comment. I don't know what that means. Nobody knows what that means. So I think we, should, we need to be much more direct with our language. And it's not, it's not calling everything racist, but some stuff is racist. Just call it racist. I also think a big problem is that most people have not studied the history and the policy and the sociology. And so most writing about race simply says, there's a disparity that exists. That's not news. We all know that in anything that you measure, black folks are on the bottom of that. What's much more important is the, is the why and the how. And I don't think that we see nearly enough of that. So when I was seeing reporting on what was happening in my daughter's school, it was one, like all the way alarmist, like Brooklyn hipsters are racist, to on the other side that was just like, oh, these poor parents don't want their kids to go to this other school because they really love this school. Well, in truth, there's an entire system that has created these issues and people don't all have the same choices. And we have a long legacy in this city of thinking we're progressive, but actually enacting extremely racist and unjust policies. And that's much more important. But that takes more time, clearly. And it also takes, you actually have to know the story yourself to be able to tell the story. The last thing I would say on that is our, our newsrooms clearly don't reflect our society. They don't reflect the racial makeup of our society. They don't reflect the backgrounds of many of the people who are writing about. So I think a lot of times reporters, when I think about why reporters were ignoring school segregation, I think it's because a lot of reporters who were covering schools were white women who were just as afraid of those black kids that they were writing about as the parents who also wouldn't put their kids in the school. So do you, that then impacts how they're covering the issue. I wanted to go back to what you were saying um, also about fake news, but particularly about how people were bypassing institutions like the New York Times to go straight to their own journalism through technology like social media. And I'm curious about what you think the nature of institutions like NBC or the New York Times will be in the future given uh, the technology that exists today and how our relationships to these institutions will change. So one, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on that. I don't make predictions. I, I, sure. I, I would hope there will always be a need for institutions like The Times and NBC. I think people want to know that there are trusted sources where people actually uh, agree on the rules of the game. We have you know, certain ways that we operate. Um, I think that that's important and clearly a citizen journalist can't, doesn't have the resources to do the types of reporting that we do. A citizen journalist can't spend a year on investigating one thing. Um, you're going to have to have institutions that support that type of reporting. 
But I also think we've always had citizen journalists in this country, and we've always had people who operated outside of the mainstream press. I love, for the most part, the democratization. I think it makes us better. I think it help, makes us more accountable to communities we didn't feel accountable to. But the downside of that is everyone now thinks they can have their own facts. People just, you know, it's like, I can show you 25 documents of how I got this story, and people can just say, I don't believe it. We do have to do a better job, I think, of educating just regular folks on how journalism works. I think we need to be much more transparent in our own reporting processes. And I think, you know, do we need to be running stories with unnamed sources about Melania's jacket? I, I think that hurts us. I think we should use those unnamed sources very, very sparingly so people understand we're only doing this because it's the only way to get the story, but you can trust that if we're doing it, it's a big deal. I actually really do want to know what you have to say about that. Well, I think that uh, you know, social media is one of our competitors now. It used to be NBC competed with ABC and CBS and, and CNN and Fox, but now we compete with everyone, as you know, with a smartphone. And unfortunately, the citizen journalists don't always play, as, as Nicole pointed out, don't always play by the same standards that we do. I, you know, very often we we hear stories out there, we prepare to cover them, and I don't think people give us a credit for you know how often we'll have a good story, what we think is a, a, an important major good story that doesn't get on the air because we we went through the, the usual rules of, of fact checking and and uh, and you know making sure it was what it was. I also let me just add this that. This is a very, very noisy world we live in right now. From the minute you switch on that phone in the morning till you switch it off at night, assuming you switch it off, you're being told what to think, what's trending, uh, what you should be worried about. All these, this cacophony of voices coming at you. And I think that the, the mainstream organizations, and I say that proudly, I know that, that term is used sometimes in a derogatory manner, but the mainstream institutions help you cut through the noise. Just to quickly add to that, um, you know, Donald Trump has been very good to the New York Times, to places like ProPublica. We have record subscribers right now. And I think what it has shown is, is, is actually that substantial journalism does matter, that we do want to have uh, accountability reporting. And, you know, the man on the street who can pull out a cell phone can't do that, right? They're not breaking stories about Facebook covering up that they knew the Russians were tampering in our election. Uh, so I think. It has driven people who had largely felt they didn't need to pay for news to understand that actually you do need to pay for news. The problem is the entire funding model, of course, of journalism is broken, and all of those paid subscribers don't make up for all the loss in advertising that's being sucked up by Facebook. And my fear is institutions like NBC and The Times will survive. It's all those regional newspapers that will not. And that's actually what impacts real people's lives because what's done in the state houses and in your city council and on your school board has much more of an effect than anything that happens in DC. And those institutions are really, really struggling. And, and that's actually what I'm most worried about. So that's my answer to that. Thank you. Thank you again to Nicole Hannah-Jones and Lester Holt for coming up to Columbia to speak to our students. It was really generous. And especially Nicole, because after Lester had to be whisked off to make it to air. She stayed around for, I don't know, the better part of an hour just talking one-on-one -on -one with students, answering all their questions. It's amazing. Really generous, yep. So let's talk again about DuPont 2019 and some of the amazing pieces of work we're going to be honoring in a few weeks. That's right. And actually, coincidentally, 
uh, a few months ago on assignment, brought you a conversation with the filmmakers of RBG, and uh, they themselves went on to win a DuPont this year, along with two other beautiful documentaries about immigration, and one about the outrageous backlog of untested rape kits in this country. Yes, with executive producer Mariska Hagerte, yep, from the Law & Order SVU, who's so passionate about this issue as a result of the themes in her show that she became involved with this really powerful documentary. Right. Um, evidence, yep. You see her in it, and she also produced it, so very involved. And uh, in fact, as we said earlier, topics about women and work by women really took center stage this year. It actually wasn't until after the awards were decided on that we started doing the math and realized that it was a record year for women. It was, you know, 16 wins. And out of those, 14 of them were from teams led by women. And several of them were about women. It's incredible. And that includes PBS's acclaimed Frontline documentary series, whose executive producer is a former colleague of ours, Rainey Aronson-Rath. This year, Frontline will take home a gold baton, which is our highest honor here at the DuPonts. And it's the first gold baton we've given out in a decade. So I think that really speaks a lot to how much Frontline has accomplished, how they are, you know, cutting edge in their reporting techniques and platform-wise, but also maintaining strong tradition of documentary reporting. That's right. There were eight separate programs that the jurors found over the jury weekend to really exemplify that kind of reporting. So it was gold baton. Looking forward to celebrating with them soon. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Sarah Wyman with the help of our DuPont fellows, Christina Shaman and Sarah Jenks. Our sound engineer was A.J. Mangone, and our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at, at DuPont Awards and visit us at onassignmentpodcast.org. Until next time.